If you are visiting us this morning, um, we are really glad you're here, and we hope you were greeted by a member who, who makes you feel welcome. Let's go ahead and uh, pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, we come to you now, and we, we come before you humbly. We're just thankful, um, thankful that we have a great God who, who knows our deepest needs before we voice them, who's present, who's enthroned on our praises. Um, I'm thankful that this isn't just a club joining to talk about a piece of literature, but it's a, a people joining to consider the greatness of our great God, who is the King of Kings, the one who, before him kingdoms fall, every other kingdom falls. So I pray that uh, we would be encouraged this morning as we gather, just at the privilege it is of gathering in the manner we do as your church. Lord, we want to pray for another local church this morning. We pray for First Baptist Greenville, and we, um, uh, we pray for Terry, for Terry Blankenship, and just uh, for his family, for him as he continues to to rehabilitate. Um, we pray that you would give him peace and encouragement and strength and steadfastness and endurance. And I pray that uh, his rehabilitation is not only physical and mental, but also spiritual, that he would be setting his mind and his eyes on the Lord above, who is good. Lord, we thank you for being um, bigger than our circumstances. That, for uh, giving us identity in Christ that allows us not to be identified by those circumstances. We pray for the church as they um, just consider the coming days ahead and how they um, need to move and what they need to do and um, what is the, the wisest decision among the shepherds there on how to lead that flock. Lord, we're thankful that you are good. Lord, we also want to pray for one of our local officials. Um, we pray for Steve Reed uh, as he um, leads in many capacities uh, in this city government. Um, I pray that um, he would fear you. I just pray that um, knowing that he has a relationship with Christ, my prayer is that that relationship would be the lens through which he sees all the opportunity in front of him, whether it's in business, whether it's in government. Um, I pray that he would be clinging to Christ first and foremost. Lord, this morning, as we uh, consider Gideon, we pray that you would give us insight and wisdom that we would otherwise not have. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Hebrews 11. You can go ahead and turn there if you haven't turned there already. We've been there for a while, and we will continue this morning in our series titled Faith Photographs. The next photograph that we see, as I mentioned in my prayer, is that of Gideon. Uh, and what we have found as we've looked at, I mean, just picture for a moment that we're all in a long hallway, and there's these big photographs on the walls, and they're, they're sort of all... The, the walls are lined with our, our heroes of the faith. And so we're walking through this hall of faith, looking at these photographs that are our heroes of the faith. And what we found is that sometimes you have to look really close at the photo to find the part that's faithful. They're not all these big, beautiful paintings, photographs that are perfectly, wonderfully, flawlessly faithful. But in fact, in some of them, you have to look really close. You got to you got to take some time to figure out, okay, what part of this photo is faithful? What part of this, this, this person's life was glorifying and, and honoring to God? Because um, what we have found is that many of their stories are riddled with scandal and arrogance and foolishness that's mixed in with their faith. And I mean, if we're honest up front, I think we can, we can relate. Um, we don't live perfectly faithful lives. We have, we have sin, we have flesh that we have to deal with. So it's good to be mindful of that as we look at this photo because we're going to have to look closely. I was thinking this week an old classmate of mine posted a picture of our football team from our freshman year of high school. I was quarterback that year. Um, don't, be, don't be too impressed. To be honest, I really wasn't all that awesome. Um, uh, I was the epitome of mediocre. I was really good at handing the ball off, not quite as good at throwing it. The shoulder pads were still bigger than me yeah, at that point. So... Um, well, he posted this picture of our football team, and it was just a matter of time before these glory days sort of, oh, y'all remember when uh, this happened? Sort of, sort of conversation started up. And um, uh, one of the linemen, his, name was, his last name was Slaughter. It was like the best lineman name ever. His name was Slaughter, um, David Slaughter. And uh, he, he, uh, he happened to, to, to share his, recount his most memorable moment from the field, and it also happened to be my most memorable moment from the field. And it was all spurred on by this photograph of our really pretty sorry and pathetic team that was, that was put up online. And he said, man, my favorite memory from the field was when Sutton, it's me, 
took a quarterback sneak for 90 yards for a touchdown. He, and then he said, I was running like I stole something. And uh, the reality was I was running because I was scared. There were big people chasing me. Um, the reason I share that this morning, the point of that example is that my football career was, was, had a really unimpressive beginning. Um, it had an even less impressive ending. But there was that one little sliver right in the middle, that one little moment where it was like, touchdown. That was awesome. Did we get that on video? Because the rest of the season was really lame. But there was that one little sliver. What I want us to see this morning is that Gideon's story has a pretty unimpressive beginning. It has an even worse ending, a pretty tragic ending. But right there in the middle, what we're going to be looking at this morning, was a glimmer of hope and faithfulness that has been deemed commendable by God's breathed out word. So what we'll be doing this morning is taking the time to look as closely as we need to at that photograph to glean from it that which is faithful. So here, here's our roadmap for the morning. First, we're going to look at our text, which is in Hebrews 11. Second, we're going to look at the context, which we, found out, we find actually in Numbers 2. And then we're going to look at Gideon's story, which is in Numbers 6 through 8. And I think at the end, there, we have us and the Hebrew church alike will have six application points that, that will uh, help us to consider what it means to move in faith. So turn to Hebrews 11, if you're not there, and look at verses 32 through 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. The Hebrews church, as they hear these words, what they were battling at the time would have been a temptation to waffle on or to abandon their faith in the face of Roman rule and in the temptation to return to Judaism, which is what they had all known up until the point that Christ completely changed everything. And so these are things that they were working through. And so something about Gideon's story. We're going to just look at Gideon this week. We'll look at Barak next week. We're not under the the time constraints that apparently the Hebrews um, writer was under and saying time would fail me. We're, I think we'll probably finish this sometime in 2015 once it's all said and done. Um, but we're going to look at, at Gideon and see what is it about Gideon that would be of help to them as they weighed their options. And to understand Gideon's story, uh, we've got to take a closer look at it. So look at Numbers 2 so we can get our context of Gideon's story. Numbers 2. I mean Judges 2. Judges 2. Could have been real bad. We'll not be going to numbers at all this morning, so if I say that again, just know I mean Judges. So Numbers 2, we're going to look at verses 11 through 23. Good grief. Here's the deal. My notes say numbers all through it. I don't know why. I opened up straight to Judges. So it's going to be a long morning, y'all. Hold on. Judges, chapter 2. As you're turning there, this is the context of the story of Gideon. Gideon was a judge. Israel needed help. And what, what we see in this, these verses that I'm about to read from Judges is that Israel fell into a cycle during this time that was a really unhealthy cycle. And in fact, if you have an ESV study Bible, you can probably see a little, there's an image in it that we can go ahead and put up. It was this really rough cycle. Um, this is not the cycle of life as much as it is maybe the cycle of death. It's, it's really rough where they were in the time of Judges. They started at the top where they would have apostasy. They'd be doing what was wicked and then They'd serve others. They'd cry out for help. God would bring about a judge. And it's th this is what's going on. So listen to how it's explained in here. And consider this graphic for just a moment as we consider these verses. Look at Judges 2.11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. 
Now we're going over to that next point. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned them and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, and they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. It's important to know. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices of their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Because of the, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they'll take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So we see this cycle where they're living in an evil, unrepentant, disobedient manner. They're given into the hands of their enemies, a neighboring nation that would, that would oppress them. Their, their oppression causes them great um, fear, great anxiety, great pain. They cry out to God, that supplication, God, help us. And mercifully, the Lord would bring some form of salvation through a judge who would, in fact, help them. You can go ahead and take that graphic down. This pattern shapes the book of Judges. Israel does what's evil. God allows them to be conquered. The people cry out. God hears their cries. But then the, tra the tragic cycle continues 12 times in the book of Judges, where once the judge dies after a period of rest and peace, it's a moment's time before they start going back to doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Twelve cycles of this in the book of Judges. So that is our context for Gideon. Gideon was one of these judges. Your ESV study Bible has a note in it that says, the judge's main function was to dispense God's justice and merciful faithfulness to his people, usually by military deliverance. So go ahead and turn to number six, and we're going to see how this happened. Judges six... Thank you for that one person who giggled and remind me that's not right. <laughs> Judges 6, what in the world? Judges, chapter 6. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the call of Gideon. Because Gideon was one of these judges in this time where Israel was in a cycle of, of uh, just unrepentance. And, and, and they, would, they would get what they are and they would cry out to God and God would bring about a judge. And so Gideon was one of them. We're going to look at how, how God called Gideon. And Israel's once again, the situation is they're taken captive by a neighboring nation. Look at... Judges 6.1, the people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. This is the same song in the next verse. This is not new. They've done this over and over again. They cry out to God in their oppression. I want you to look at how God answers them in verse 11. 6.11, we're going to read through 18. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which had belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. That's not usually where you would beat out the wheat is in a winepress. You would usually do that where there's wind and where the, the chaff can be taken away. And so he's having to do it in private to, to hide so that they don't come and steal what, what he's been working on and so that they don't come to oppress him and say, oh, I see you're doing some work. Let me go, go and benefit from your work. And so he's hiding here. The Lord is with you, the angel says, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, uh, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. That's his response to the angel's proclamation that the Lord is with him. Really, it doesn't look like it. 
Doesn't feel like it. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, "Uh, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. How's this going to work? And the Lord said to him, but I'll be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me again a sign. I need a sign that it's you who speaks with me. So he looks at him and says to the one who's speaking to him, I'm going to need a sign to know it's you who's speaking to me. I want you to notice that in this time of turmoil for Israel, God goes to this guy to help bring him out. I want you to notice that Gideon's immediate response is not indicative of that of a valiant warrior. I mean, I've heard so many kids' stories about Gideon that I was actually, I mean, I've, I've read the story before, but when I really dove in to study it and look at this faith photograph as closely as I can, I was like, huh, the kids' stories don't always line up. The VeggieTale thing doesn't always line up the way that Scripture is because he's not who we were expecting him to be, especially here at the beginning. He doesn't have the response of a valiant warrior. Imagine this for a moment. I want you to import yourselves, your senses, into this context so that we could see what it would be like. To, to maybe, maybe we can understand why Gideon would respond in such a, such a manner as he did. Imagine for a moment that your country has been taken captive. Imagine that your neighborhoods have been turned into labor camps. That just as soon as you plant a crop and it springs up, the oppressing nation nation comes and takes it from you. That just as soon as your check is directly deposited into your bank account, that within a few moments someone comes and takes it and then makes you work even harder for it the next week. That's the setting for them. Imagine what that would be like. So you're hiding in your garage, trying to grow some food for your family. And an angel comes to you and says, the Lord is with you. Gideon's response is probably very similar to what some of our responses might be. God's with me, question mark. He's he's here. Okay, um, then if God is with me, um, why is everything going so poorly? Why is everything so hard? Why are we so oppressed? Why Why is it not going even remotely how I wish it was going if God is with me? Gideon here is very easy to relate to in this moment. Then the angel says, go in this might of yours. You're so bold, Gideon. Listen to you talking back to God. Go in this might of yours and conquer the oppressing nation. And Gideon's response, how's that going to work? Imagine, what what would you say if you're in your garage trying to grow some food? Go and conquer the oppressing nation. How do, what do I even do? What's the first, what? There's so many of them. There's so few of us. How in the world do I move forward in this thing? And things aren't good right now. It's not like we're at our peak and let's go strike while the iron's hot. The iron's cold. How are we going to do this? And then God says, I'm with you, and I will give you success. The reality in this moment in Scripture is that the promised presence of God is not enough for Gideon. And he asks for a sign. He doesn't say, you're going to be with me? Fine, I'll be good. Let's do this. He says, I'm going to need a sign. I'm going to need you to, to give me something, something tangible, something a little bit more before I go stepping off into something so crazy. The story continues, and the angel of the Lord grants Gideon, doubtful Gideon, a sign. He's so incredibly merciful, our Lord. This is very reminiscent of, of Moses' initial response and others where, I'm not the guy, I can't, I can't talk good, I'm not a people person, I can't, I'm not strong enough. And, and that's where Gideon is. Gideon's in this doubtful moment. So it's a rocky beginning. We get through this rocky beginning, and God then makes a few things clear. I don't want to read all three chapters to you, so I'm going to summarize a little bit of what happens. But the next thing that happens is that they get through that rocky beginning, and God is very merciful with with doubtful and fearful Gideon. And God says, okay, we're going to make a few things clear. First things first, it's time to get rid of the idols. They sinned against God. They're oppressed by another nation. They cry out to God. God comes to them 
And one of the first things is it's time to get rid of the idols. And so what he does is he, he tells Gideon to go and, um, and to burn down the bales and the Asherah poles um, and to get rid of them. He's saying in this rescue, there's no room for Baal and there's no room for the Asherah. So the Lord gives Gideon direction to cut him down, burn him up, and offer a sacrifice. And I want you all to look at verse 27 to see how he responds. In Judges 6, 27, so he's moving. Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. That was his response. So he did it. He just said, Ah, it seems pretty risky to do it during the day because, well, they'll probably kill me while I'm killing their idols. So we'll do it. We're going to wait till they go to sleep, you know, like really asleep, and then we'll, we'll move on. So Gideon's still timid. Gideon's still moving in fear. He's not quite the valiant warrior that we may have been expecting, but what we have to see here is he is moving in faith. Step by step, one scared foot in front of the other, He's moving. He's doing what God has told him to do. The next morning, the town is angry. They want to kill him. And his daddy, his father, steps in and says um, some very eloquent words and essentially says, um, if you kill my son, you're going to die because you're not God's. And so he, he holds them off. And then we'll pick up in verse 33 to see what happens next. So they, he, kills, he gets rid of Baal. He gets rid of the Asherah poles. They want to kill him. His dad steps in says, it's not going to happen. And then look what happens Now in verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I love this moment in Scripture here. All of these strong warriors who hate you and are aiming to oppress you are moving into the valley closer. And then, but the Lord clothed Gideon. The Lord clothed Gideon and look what happens. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun, and to Naphtali, and they went out to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save me, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, God, if you're going to do what you already said that you're going to do, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then, then I'll know. Then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me, but uh, that's not enough. Let me speak just once more. Just, just one, one more, God. One more. Just one more. Please let me test you just once more with the same fleece. I'm not going to get a new test. I'm just going to do the fleece test again, but we're going to reverse it. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece, and on all the ground there was dew. This is ridiculous. As I was preparing to preach this part, it's hard to preach through. It's ridiculous to sit and listen to the way God is, the way Gideon is responding to God. God's already granted him one sign and been very mercifully patient with him. And here again, two more times, Gideon puts the fleece out to test God. Your ESV study Bible has a note that says to say. It's your, the notes in Hebrews 11, it says, to say that these heroes have some measure of faith is not to say that they were consistent models of faith and virtue. Amen, right? To say that they had some measure of faith is not to say that they were consistent, unwavering models of faith and virtue. The Hebrews author has commended the faith of Gideon. But not all of Gideon's acts were faithful and commendable. We, we know the Hebrew law to be clear. Deuteronomy 6.16 says that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Gideon, what are you doing? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's very clear. There's not a lot of margin for like, well, what about a fleece? No, that includes the fleece. Gideon's reluctant to lead, 
Gideon is fearful in what he might face. And in his fear and in his reluctance, he makes the terrible choice of putting God to the test. I want to be very clear at this point in our story that we do not test God. Mercifully, God grants him what he asks, but we do not test God. That's a wrong use of Scripture. And I've heard it happen before where people will go and say, Hey, man, you know what? It worked for Gideon to test God. Let's, put, let's, let's, let's do a test. Let's, let's put a test out to God, and if he does what we want him to do, then we'll do what he wants us to do. And that's not faithful. That's a misuse of Scripture. That'd be like saying, well, um, Moses killed a guy, so big deal if I murder someone. That's not how you use Scripture. It takes wisdom. It takes discernment. And our discernment here is do not test the Lord, your God. That's why the next thing is so remarkable. God grants him what he asks. We should all be marveling right now that a big lightning bolt didn't come down and say, Gideon, grab your fleece and just just get done with the fleece and Gideon. But God mercifully grants what he asks. And in turn, Gideon's emboldened. Gideon seems to grow in his faith in the next moments. Gideon seems to move forward in his faith after this crazy, sloppy exchange where God is amazingly merciful. What I want us to see here, which I think will be an encouragement, we're not at the application yet, but I think it'll be encouragement, it is clear that God is far more aware of Gideon's weakness than Gideon is aware of God's strength. That may encourage you this morning. It is very clear that God is far more aware of Gideon's weakness than Gideon is aware of God's strength. So we move forward. Now has come the time for Gideon to take his army and defeat the Midianites. This is where we're at in this story. It's time to go up against the oppressing nation. This is a big moment. So Gideon gathers all 32,000 of his men together. And look at what God says in chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. He gathers them all together, 32,000, to go up against 130-something thousand of the opposing and oppressing army whom they are being held captive by. And look at what God says in 2. The Lord said to Gideon, chapter 7, verse 2, in the book of Judges, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Really? Because it looks the other way around, right? 20-something thousand, or no, 32,000 verse over 130-something. It looks imbalanced by six figures. And God, who is all-wise and doesn't really make mistakes, and I'm certain he's good at math, says... The people with you are far too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, look at what he does. He says, now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of them returned, and only 10,000 remained. Okay, so that was God's doing. God said, okay, there's 32,000, let's let 22,000 return home because of their fear. To be clear, by God's instruction, Gideon was to decrease the number of his army from 32,000 to 300. The reason? So that they wouldn't boast. So that they wouldn't even have a place to boast. So that God would get the glory when this certain victory comes through. Then God gives Gideon two options a few verses later. He says, go ahead and take the Midians with the 300. Or if you're still afraid, well, they, they thin it out and they come down to 300 is what happens. There's one more step and they get down to 300. And, and God says to Midian, okay, now that you got the 300, they come way down. They go to 10,000 and they go to 300 because of this water drinking thing. And so 32,000 all the way down to 300 in the course of this, this story. And, and, and God tells Gideon, um, he gives him two options. He says, go ahead. And take the Midianites out with the 300. Or, if you're still afraid, take your servant, Pura, and go down to the camp of the Midianites, and you shall hear what they say, and your hands will be strengthened. So Gideon's gone through this thing where God says, okay, there's 32,000, let's go down to 10,000, and then let's go from 10,000 right, right smack dab down to 300. And then, and then he says to Gideon, are you ready? But if you're not ready, I'm still even going to be so merciful as to give you one more option. If you're still, still fearful... Go down to their camp, and you're going to hear something that will strengthen your hands. And so he does. He goes down, and he hears a dream that one of the Midianites has that reveals that Israel will overthrow the Midianites through the leadership of Gideon. 
That's the dream that he hears. Look at chapter 7, verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. If you look at that word worshiped, it means he fell on his face and he, and he worshiped God. This is faithful movement. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands. I'm sorry, what? How about a sword? Come on, men, let's ready for battle. Here's your trumpet. Here's your trumpet. Here's your trumpet. Hold on, I've got some jars too. And he goes on, and he gives them trumpets in their hands and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, you blow your trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. If I'm just analyzing their approach to winning this battle at this point, I mean, I'm saying, all right, cool. You might as well have taken water balloons or squirt guns or, I mean, it just looks foolish. There's not many of you and you're not even well armed. It looks foolish. He goes on in verse 19 to say, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set up, set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man Every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshedah towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahalalah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Oh my goodness, it worked. The trumpet and jar approach with not enough people worked. It's amazing. With trumpets, jars, and torches, and a very present God, they overtake the Midianite army of about 135,000. Most times I've heard this story, I hear, be like Gideon and know that no amount of people can stand in front of you, even alone you can. That's how you hear the story of Gideon, and I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it was God. That's it. I'm pretty sure it was the Lord, but here's what I want us to see. Because this is the faith part. This is that, there's that quarterback sneak right in the middle. Sad beginning. We'll see the sad end in a minute, but here's the faith part. God, through the faith of Gideon, overthrew the Midian army. And he brought relief to his people. This is the shining moment of faith that's commended to the Hebrew church for their encouragement. The Israelites would go on to experience after this, this is what they say, seven years of oppression or eight years of oppression. They would go on to experience after this victory 40 years of peace and rest after this. The Israelites would go on to experience 40 years of peace and rest after this conquest. This is a significant victory. To be clear, I want to be really clear here. It's a great act of faith for Gideon to take the 300 men to blow the trumpets to smash the jars, to hold the torches, and to scream their battle cry for the Lord and for Gideon. Why? Because it took great faith to step out into a life-threatening circumstance, certain that your survival was dependent upon God doing something beyond your own ability. That's why this is a beautiful picture of faith right here. They were stepping out into a time where they could have flat out gotten hammered by the opposing army, who was stronger and had something more sufficient than trumpets and jars. But what the opposing army didn't have was God. And the faith element is for him to step out with his men and say, I'll do what God told me, and I will do it in a circumstance where the only possible way I survive is that God steps in and does something that's far beyond my ability. That's faith. That's what's beautiful and commendable about Gideon's movement. That's I wish the story ended there, but I want you to consider how foolish it would be to become puffed up at this point. If Gideon was to be, oh, did y'all see that? They're running. 
Did y'all see that? If he comes puffed up and arrogant and starts talking trash, like, yeah, that's right. Tell your friends. Come on. Tell them who I am. How foolish would it be for that to happen, right? Guess what happens? That's exactly what happens. Gideon does that. That's exactly what Gideon does. He should have hit his knees, and he should have thanked God for his deliverance. Instead, he starts chasing those who are running away, and he starts threatening others along the way. Like, if you're not with me, I'm going to come back. I'm going to rough you up. That's what Gideon starts doing. He comes to, to the city of Succoth, and he asks them for help, and, and he asks them for some bread and for water to relieve the troops because they've been battling so hard. I'm sorry. I thought you blew a trumpet and crashed the jars on the ground. You may be tired from running after your enemies, but don't act like you're a big battle-ridden warrior. The Lord did the fighting for you, but he goes to the city of Succoth and he says, please give my men some bread and some water. And they say, you don't even have the people, all the people. You're still chasing them down. How do we know you're not against us like you're against them? And Gideon's response is, I'll I'll paraphrase it, okay, when I get back, I'm going to burn your house down and rough you up, is essentially what he says. I'm going to discipline you with the thorns and the briars from the wild, is what he says. He begins to move in vengeance. Gideon begins to move in violence. It's absolutely bizarre. After a moment of faith and a really sweet experience of God's provision, which would have a 40-year lasting effect, Gideon quickly begins to attribute God's accomplishments to himself. And he gets arrogant. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. He's getting even. He's chasing some people down. He does, he does some beheading. He flexes his muscles. He was really emboldened, but not so much in his faith as much as it should have been. And look at what happens in 8.22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You and your son and your grandson also, for you saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So it's like, okay, all right. This is looking good. Good answer, Gideon. Way to come back down to earth and say, the Lord will rule over you. But he doesn't shut up. He keeps talking. And Gideon said to them, let me, make a, let, let me make one request of you. Let me make a request. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had gotten golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that was requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and beside the collars that were around their necks and the necks of their camels. I'm sorry, is this sounding familiar to anybody else? Let's gather up the gold. I've got an idea. This setup is a story I've heard before. You get through verse 26, and you should start scratching your head. I've heard this story. This sounds terrifyingly similar to Aaron at the base of Mount Sinai, who collects the gold. They're wanting something from him in the way of leadership. He collects the gold. He throws it into the fire, and magically, poof, out poofs this golden calf. You remember that story? Out pops this golden calf that they could call their God. Let me just say, if you're ever in a setting where your leader says, okay, everyone take off your golden earrings and bracelets of gold. I got an idea. I would encourage you to either speak up or run away. Because we know how it's going to go. Look at what happens in, chapter 20, in verse 27 of the same chapter. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all of Israel whored after it. Good grief. Are you kidding me? It was a sweet moment of faith, sweet moment of delivery. You start acting like people before you. Give me your gold. I'll make something cool. And they start whoring after it. That's not my word. That is Scripture's word. They start whoring after it. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the day of Gideon. So Gideon's story didn't begin well. Gideon's story didn't really end well either. But there in the middle, there was some faith. It was some faith that accomplished great things by the power of God. It was a faith that said, we will not even live through this if God does not have the power to do something beyond our own ability. 
having looked at Gideon's whole story and after having identified the commendable parts that were faithful and also the parts that were not, I think we can walk away with at least six things that would have been an encouragement to the Hebrew church who's hearing the commendation of Gideon and they can also be an encouragement to us today. So here's number one. We're going to have six things. Number one, God hears your cries. God hears your cries. And not only that, he knows from where you are crying out. What's remarkable about this is that Israel's oppression was brought on by their own sin. Go back to the beginning of the story. Israel's oppression was brought on by their own sin. They were apostate. They were evil. They were doing what was evil on the side of God. God gives them over in his anger to an opposing nation. The reason they're being lorded over by the Midianites is because of their sin. This is important. Israel's biggest problem wasn't the Midianites. It was their sin. So it was from the consequences of their own sin that they cried out to God. And he responded mercifully. He provided what they needed the most when they couldn't have deserved it any less. He hears your cries. He provided for them what they needed the most when they really couldn't have deserved it any less. I think this would have helped out the Hebrews church to cry out to God in their sin, to know that Rome wasn't the biggest obstacle, that Judaism wasn't the biggest obstacle, that opposition just to their Christianity wasn't the biggest obstacle, but to know and to be reminded and to be sure that their sin was their biggest problem. To cry out in their fear, they would have been encouraged to cry out in their unbelief, they would have been encouraged to cry out in their second guessing, not as a means of earning God's blessing, but as a means of seeking deliverance when their sin would lead them to believe that Rome is their biggest hurdle. Rome's not your biggest hurdle. Think of it this way. 300 POWs taking on an army of 135,000 trained warriors seems pretty ridiculous, right? The only thing more ridiculous is for you to try to deal with your own sin without the presence and the strength of God in Jesus Christ. Please take that with you today. Think of those 300 POWs with their trumpets and their jars and their torches, and know that the only thing more foolish for them in that moment would be for you to try to take care of your own sin without the presence and the strength of a very good God who has made a way for us to him in Jesus Christ. I urge you to cry out to him no matter how desperate your situation may seem. The second thing is that Gideon didn't feel ready for battle. You ever struggle with that? Just not feeling it. I, maybe you're calling me to it. I'm not feeling it. Gideon did not feel ready for battle. His readiness was completely owing to the strength of God who was with him. I mean, God could have said, yeah, if I'm not with you, you're not ready. If you don't have my presence, you're going to lose. If you don't have my strength, you're going to get smashed by six figures worth of trained warriors. But, but he does have God's presence, and he does have God's strength. So Gideon didn't feel ready for the battle. The Hebrews church may not have felt ready to face the inevitable battles of walking in their faith in the face of Judaism and Roman rule. But through Gideon, God reminds them and us that often, if not always, he uses the common and the fragile to accomplish his purposes. That our God is so great and so merciful and so full of strength and so present that he could even use someone who's doubtful of their abilities. Someone who's flat out scared to step out. Someone who is fearful. Someone who would go so far as to be so crazy as to second guess the Lord. To test God. Our God is so strong he can use even weak, fragile, common vessels like that to pour out his mercy and to pour out his justice as he sees fit. That's the God that we serve. Gideon didn't feel ready for battle. God had bigger plans. The third point actually builds on the second. God's glory was dependent on his people being fewer in number comparatively. God's glory. Remember he said, we're going to go from 32,000, let the fearful ones go home. 22,000 left. And then they went and did the lapping of the water thing. And then they went down from 10,000 to 300 and, and, and through the course of the story. And that was God's movement, his wise movement on purpose as he used this judge to deliver them from the oppression, usually through a military endeavor. 
God's glory was dependent on his people being few in number comparatively. Church, more numbers aren't always better. More numbers aren't always better. I want as many people as possible to be saved. I want to encourage each of you to use your borrowed breath in your short time on earth to proclaim the gospel so that you might see souls brought from darkness to light and from death to life. I want as many as possible to be saved. And I want us to be serious about that who have been given a a responsibility by a great God who is present and with us. But in that endeavor, more numbers aren't always better. There are times, there are situations, there are circumstances, there are seasons where more numbers are not always better. Here they prove to be a hindrance to the glory of God. If there's too many of you, I won't get the glory that I have planned in this thing. God's clear intention is to win the battle with less people. This must have been sweet to the Hebrew church. Fewer in number, surrounded by a Roman culture that is completely opposed to their new Christian reality, Few in number, surrounded by a Roman culture, threatened by their Jewish community who feels like they've turned on them by going to Christ. Oh, how sweet to remember how God moved with Gideon, of all people, to provide long-term success and freedom with far fewer people. And not just that, but with people who were oppressed, outnumbered, and unpopular. In the coming days, it's not likely that your Christian faith will have you standing with the majority of our population. I would offer in the current day, it's not likely that your Christian faith will have you standing with the majority of our population. You may be outnumbered. You may be unpopular. Oh, how this flies in the face of so many who have no other indicator for success than having a large crowd. How many times do you see someone, and they say, oh, what church you go to? And you tell them, and they say, oh, how many do you have? It happens all the time. I understand what's being asked there. How's that going? Y'all having an impact on your community? But there's better questions. What's the condition of the souls of your flock? How are the shepherds doing? Are people actually eating this and being hearers of this and doers of this, or are they just hearing it in one ear and out the other? How are things going, really, not just how many are there, because success is not our only indicator, is not only indicated by numbers. If your only success indicators, especially in ministry, are high numbers of people, you're not measuring success by God's standard. And I would offer, you may very well be building your own kingdom and not God's. There's a number of church plants that fold because they feel like they don't have enough people to go on. If you're measuring success only by numbers, your success is not being measured by God's standard, and in fact, you may very well be building your own kingdom instead of God's. His glory was dependent upon his people being fewer in number comparatively. The fourth thing is that God's strength and God's presence should diminish our fear. Guys, I want you to understand that fear is very real. Fear in our text here has been very prevalent. Look again with me at chapter 7, verses 2 through 3. The people with you are too many for me to give into the Midianites to give uh, the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast of me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fruitful and trembling, let him return home. Whoever is fearful and trembling, sorry, let him return home and hurry away. Hurry up and go home if you're fearful. Now, with the numbers already not in their favor, over two-thirds of the Israelites rightly returned home simply on the basis of their fear. I didn't know this before this week, but Mosaic Law would have actually already addressed exemptions from war based on fear. And the reason is telling. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 20. Just to the left a little bit. Deuteronomy 20. I'm going to read verses 2 through 8. Deuteronomy 20, verses 2 through 8. These are the laws, the Mosaic laws that they would have been under at this point concerning warfare. Deuteronomy 20, verse 2. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, 
Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight your victory, to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officer shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who's built a new house and hasn't dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. So there's a reality. He's saying, don't be fearful, but there's a reality that you might die in battle. So it's like, well, tell me I won't die in battle and I won't be fearful. But that's not, that's not what God's doing here. He's, he's wanting you to be aware of what reality is, but here, according to his law, he's saying, if you built a house, lest you die in battle, go back, uh, um, unless another man dedicated. And is there any man who's planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruits? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle and another man enjoy its fruits. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who's fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. Do you see what fear does in battle? Do you see why God cares about you conquering your fear? Why he tells you, I'm with you. I'm going to deliver him. You're, you're on the winning team already. Know that you're on the winning team. Because of the effect that fear can have on our fellow warriors. Fear, much like bitterness, has a negative effect on those around us, whether we intend for it to or not. Sometimes when we're bitter, we can say, I'll hide that. It ain't going to affect anybody. But Scripture says in Hebrews, it's a deep root that defiles many once it springs up. Inevitably here, you could say, man, I'm fearful, but I'm I'm just not going to show it. God doesn't call you to just not show your fearfulness. He calls you to not be fearful. There's a big difference between the two. Because one says, I'll hide it, and the other one says, I will trust God. I'll trust God with everything. I'll trust every word he's saying. I'll lean heavily on his promises. I will rejoice in his presence, and I will move forward in boldness, whether it feels logical or not, because he's God. So he's concerned about your fear. Don't hide it. Fight against it. Put it to death. Fear might, like bitterness, has a negative effect on those, whether we intend it or not. The reason that God is so adamant about dealing with your fear is because it makes you unfit for battle. Deal with your fear. Stop pushing it down inside. Stop just trying to ignore it. Stop just trying to be distracted from it. Deal with your fear because it makes you unfit for battle. And not only that, fear breeds fear. It's contagious. It would have been helpful for the Hebrews church to remember that their fearfulness is contagious and it would be best to address their fear with the realities that God is present and that we move in his strength. I was recently at a conference with Kevin DeYoung, um, of Kevin DeYoung. It wasn't like me and Kevin were hanging. Um, but he was preaching. I was one of like 8,000 people listening. And he shared a really great definition of boldness. And he says, he says, to be bold is to be clear in the face of fear. If you haven't dealt with your, with your fear and you're just holding it down, there, you don't have the clarity that you need to, to truly be clear in the face of fear and to be bold. God gives us his promises and his presence to help us fight against our fears and to be bold in our battles. It's not enough for a pastor or a shepherd or a leader to stand up and try to just give sort of a speech and an encouragement and speak emphatically and with a particular intonation and with an inflection that that gets you ready. You gotta trust God. It's not an emotional thing as much as it is a being really in tune with what reality really is thing. You have to address your fear. The fifth thing is that God used Gideon to save his people, execute justice, and bring a significant season of peace and rest. We've kind of said this in about 10 different ways already, but for the Hebrew church, who I'm sure longed for peace and longed for rest and longed for justice, to you who are sitting here when you watch the news or you see what's going on worldwide, long for peace and long for justice, long for rest, to be reminded that even from the very unlikely and the unimpressive, God can do great things. That would have been an encouragement. When you see these leaders that are stepping out and oppressing others, God might have a fragile little clumsy Gideon up in that administration somewhere that makes a difference. 
God might have a clumsy, little, fragile, doubtful, fearful Gideon that doesn't feel ready to stand up for what God's stirring in his heart to address what needs to be addressed in a situation that's wicked or oppressive or wrong or unjust. That would have been an encouragement to them and not just an encouragement, but a bit of a reality check. This sobers us up to the fact that God is always doing more than we can see. Our God is always doing more than we can see and is able to execute his plans with guys like Gideon, with guys like Scott and Ben and Brad and you and our deacons and the fragile and the common and the fearful and the doubtful, with people who struggle with fear, people who struggle with doubt, people who struggle with arrogance. Our God will accomplish all of his purposes. That should be an encouragement if you're not feeling it. It should be a real encouragement. It's a beautiful thing that as Christians we can look back on a heritage of, of Judaism and then into Christianity where we can see a God who is just constantly doing as he sees fit, a God who is never overcome. We can look back at those who were oppressed in particular cultures and say, those cultures don't even exist anymore in that manner, and the church is growing. Those people who were so oppressive aren't feared anymore like they used to be, and the church is growing. It's beautiful for us to have that kind of gut check and reality check to sober us up that God is always doing more than we realize and he can do it with the likes of a Gideon. The last thing is that Gideon was a fool to presume upon God's power as a means to establish his own kingdom. Gideon was a fool to presume upon God's power as a means of establishing his own kingdom, as a means of looking at others and saying, did you see what I just did? I'll do the same to you if you step up. Like, no, no, you're moving wrong there, Gideon. You're a fool to do that. When God answers your cries, and when he brings you relief and freedom from your sin by doing exactly what he did with them, by requiring you to get rid of those idols, and when you have that relief and that freedom and that experience of the joy of walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh, do not make the mistake that Gideon made. Be faithful. Do not make the mistake that Gideon made or the mistake that, remember that cycle I showed you that Israel repeated over 12 times in the book? Over and over again, Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Don't do that. Don't do, Gideon returned to his vomit. Israel kept returning to their vomit. That's why you don't kiss a dog on the mouth. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. A fool returns to sin. A fool takes that freedom and enjoys it and basks in it and then falls and returns to his vomit and lives for his own little kingdom where he can do as he wishes as his own little king of his own little castle with his own set of rules and his own expectations and the things that will make him happy as the king of the castle. Don't return to your vomit. A wise man doesn't repeat his folly. This is the same wisdom that was given to the Hebrew church. Remember what it said earlier in Hebrews 11, verse 10. But the faithful are looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Faith cries out to God, accepts his freedom from sin, and works hard to fearlessly live for a better kingdom, not to establish your own. We look forward to a better kingdom and a better city. As we take the supper, I want us to be reminded of something real simple. I want us to know that back in Genesis 17, Genesis is a book of beginnings because it's how everything started. And the way that it started, part of it was in Genesis 17, God promised Sarah that kings would come from her. Now, why would he promise Sarah that kings would come from her if it was not his intention that eventually kings would come from her? It was his plan from the beginning that Israel would be led by kings. The judges, like Gideon, were a precursor to kings. And all of the kings were but a precursor and a shadow of the king of kings. Oh, how wonderful that our faithfulness and our guarantee for victory did not lie in the hands of Gideon, right? Oh, how wonderful that us sitting here today as a people of faith was not contingent upon Gideon, was not contingent upon any of the judges, was not contingent upon the kings who would come after the judges, 
because we have a better Gideon. We have Jesus Christ. He's a better judge. He's a better king. We don't put our hope in the judges and the kings of this earth to help us overcome our fear and our sin. If you're watching things on a global scale and you're saying, if this leader would just do this, I will not be fearful anymore or I will not sinfully doubt God, you're putting your hope in in an inadvertent way into that leader. You're saying to that leader, you do what I want you to do and I won't be so anxious and fearful. We don't put our hope in judges and kings of the earth to help us to overcome our fear and our sin. Christ alone conquers our sin. Christ alone conquers our fear. He alone is a better judge. He alone is a better king. He alone is a better Gideon. That's what it means when we say king of kings. We sang it this morning, all nations before him will fall. That's a guarantee. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you are walking in some of the sweetest reality that anyone could ever imagine. You are walking in something that has been conquered for you. You're walking in something that's so encouraging. As you're trying to push back against sin, encourage other people, do what's right, Share Christ, and it's not, it doesn't feel like it's going well. You're on the winning team, friend. That's what Mark Dever would say, friend. You're on the winning team. You're in the right place. Our victory is certain in Christ. That's what we're celebrating as we take this supper. We're anticipating him to come back and establish a very real kingdom on this earth, new heavens, new earth. He's going to do it. It's a guarantee, as much of a guarantee as it was for every single one of these fragile and common and feeble people who were saved by him and brought salvation by him in their weakness and in their fear. We don't put our hope in the judges and the kings of the earth to help us overcome our fear and our sin. Christ alone conquers our fear. Christ alone conquers our sin. So rather rather than returning to our vomit, we return to the table week after week. That might be a little graphic, but I think it's appropriate. Rather than returning to our vomit, we return to this table week after week, acknowledging the presence and the strength of our king, and together anticipating his return and the establishment of a better kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. We've said it so many times, but Lord, there's no one like you. You are altogether better than every judge and every king that ever was. I'm thankful for Gideon's faith. I'm thankful that Gideon set an example for us to stand firm in an uncertain circumstance and to be certain and sure that God would have to accomplish something beyond his own ability and even the ability of his own small army. Lord, I'm thankful that we can take this supper and we can know looking back how you never abandoned or or never abandoned and have never forsaken your people and how we can look forward and know that you promised to always be with us. You promise us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. You promise us that we have no reason to fear. You promise us that who by being anxious can add a single second to his life and you tell us and command us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We can come to you and we can let our request be made known and you give us a peace that exceeds understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. My Lord, you are so good. We serve such a mighty God. I'm thankful for the example that you gave us in Gideon, but I think more than that, Lord, I'm just thankful that we serve the same God Gideon served. And that's the source of our faith. We love you, Lord. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. As we take the supper, um, I want us to, uh, I don't want us to lose sight of something. As I was thinking through, as we're distributing the elements, that, man, we have the power and strength and presence of God. I mean, what, what more could we ask for? That's, a, that's remarkable. But really, what more could, could you ask for? But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that he was asking them to risk their lives. He was asking him to go into some territory that was unstable. He was asking him to go and do something that looked really stupid to the rest of the world. He was asking them to trust him more than they love their own life. He was asking them to, to die to themselves. And what I want us to see is that that's no small call. 
I mean, could you have stood with a trumpet in a jar? What he's asking of us is that we would trust him implicitly and completely with all of our life. He is not promising you that no one will hurt you. He's not promising you that no one will kill you. What he's promising is that he will be with you. And whatever they do to the body, they cannot do to the soul because it does not belong to them. Our Lord will sustain us forever. Our Lord will sustain us forever. So you want to talk about treasuring Christ He wouldn't ask us to do that if he hadn't sent his own son to die in our place. He wouldn't ask us to do that if Christ had not absorbed the wrath that was due to us for unrighteously suppressing the truth about him in our sin. So we should take this very humbly this morning. We should take this in anticipation of a Christ who will return, who will establish a better kingdom that is firm and that is unending. And we should do so humbly knowing that we are called to give our lives completely to him. He's asking for everything. So humbly, take and eat. Take and drink. God, in prayer, I confess before this people this morning that if I did not have your promises and I did not have your word, I would be one of the weakest and most fearful creatures that has ever walked this earth. Lord, help us not to draw on the wrong things for boldness or draw on the wrong things to help us through a fearful moment. But Lord, help us to be certain to to speak to ourselves, to speak to one another, to stir one another up to the same reality you stirred the Hebrew church up to and that you are greater, that Christ is a better Gideon, that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and that that blessing is one that is eternal and can't be taken from us. Lord, you are you're great. You're greatly to be praised. What more can we say? Lord, as we continue in song and as we continue in giving, I pray that we would continue in wholeheartedness, in sober, humble wholeheartedness. Love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.